Uh, this morning, I want to begin with what I think is a common problem and a common question uh, for, for everyone. Whether you're a believer in God or you're an atheist, diehard atheist, something like that, or anything in between, really. <clears throat> we, in many ways, all share the same, same problem. And the problem is something like this. How do I decide what to do in a complex world? Uh, all of us have all kinds of decisions that you're going to make tomorrow. You know, do I stop at this gas station or this gas station? Which one has the better price? And then we have big questions. You know, what do I do with my kid who's not listening, my husband or, or wife who we're having conflicts? Do I take this job or that job? There's all kinds of issues that we, that we face. And the question that lays at our feet, sometimes we don't think about it, we just do it, but, but is how do I decide what to do? How do I decide what to do? A whole industry has risen around this question. And some of that falls within the categories of like psychology and counseling. There's sort of a, a spiritual, well, let's call it a spiritual self-help. You're kind of Oprah-like person, Deepak Chakra, these different authors who have spiritual advice, but it's not necessarily connected to any, any religion uh, uh, and we have our own brand, our own Christian version of self-help. You pick it up, there's four, four things. You do the four things right, your life will be better tomorrow because God wants all of us to have the best life possible. All of it comes from that same question. What do I do next? What do I do tomorrow? Anybody resonate with that? Is that anybody facing questions, problems that you're... That you're wrestling with. Well, the ancient world was very much the same. In fact, I would suggest that there is nothing different between where we stand today and 3,000 years into the past where we're about to explore. The same problem exists. The world is not any less complex today than it was back then. The complexity still remains. The difficulty of life, the struggles of life, they're all, they're all the same. And they're asking the same question you're asking. And Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 uh, through 22 is the, is the whole section that we'll be looking at today, engages the same problem, the same question. And I know, this is, this is wonderful, as I have, have initiated the conversation we're going to have today, um, I'm going to read this text cold, and you're going to think this has no application whatsoever to my life. This is not at all related to the question that um, we're asking, and I get to show you why you're wrong. It's so lovely. Isn't it wonderful to tell some... I'm just kidding. Sort of. I'm sort of kidding. If you think that, then you're wrong. But I, 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 I look forward to, to engaging in this text. So let's just open our scriptures. If you're using the Pew Bible like I am, it's page 161, second column. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. We'll start there. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations just sounds like let's first thing sunday morning let's talk about some abominable practices and if you're new here today i wanted to just give a quick little this is what's going on because if you're new here today you're like what's deuteronomy what are we even talking about you people are crazy um you people crazy part is true but let's let's get get into the what's going on so what's happening in this book is that god has brought his people from egypt which is well over there in the baptistry Let's put it over there. It works. Uh, brought these people from Egypt. Uh, they have wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years over here with the choir. And, 
which is not an indictment of the choir, but just uh, moves up here, and they're sitting along the banks of the Jordan. They're about to enter into the promised land, and Moses says, hold up. I got a sermon for y'all. It's going to take a while. Sit down, get comfortable, but not too comfortable so that you can hear me out. And you can see right here in these, all these different peoples that surround us. So you have Moab as a nation, Am, Ammon, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, these different territories. And there's all kinds of people who live in those territories. And those people have their own values and their own goods. How they see the world, how they fit into the world, and how they live inside of the world is different than the people that God is trying to draw forward. Do I have a... I don't. Yeah, right, exactly. So this has been the worldview chart that we've been talking about. What, what is God doing? He is building a people who view the world a particular way, and then he wants to situate his people within the world. How, who are they and how do they fit? And then he is going to give them practices of how they are to live within the world. This same thing exists in every culture, in every time, and in every place. Both today, in the American culture in which we live, and in the ancient world and all the cultures that they live in. They interacted with the world in a particular way. And that gets into the next verse. Verse 10. So there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens. Or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires... Of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And, be, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So, what we have here is a list of religious practices. That the people of the, the, the peoples around Israel engage in. And it might be very easy for us to set aside these practices and say, well, I don't know any necromancers. And if you do, wow, you have a strange group of friends. I'm really interested in having a conversation. I hope you guys show up at the coffee with questions, because I have some questions. We don't, we don't engage in a lot of these things, although it is important to say that these things are alive and well today. Uh, maybe you don't run into them. I've had some friends who are involved in witchcraft in different ways and who practice certain religions. And there's, there's really quite an explosion of this in some, some forms of society. And the Bible situates this as a reality. You can engage in these practices and get something out of them. The Bible just assumes that there are ways that you can contact forces that you don't see and that these things can impact your life. The Bible doesn't assume that. Because easily we could, God have just said, hey, listen, don't listen to those people. They're just trying to take your money. He doesn't. God says, don't interact with those things. Which is an important, uh, an important point, I think, in our world. Because we live in a world that is very materialistic. We view the world, our values and goods, our worldview in this American society is one of pure empiricism. What I can see, what I can taste, what I can touch, what I can test. These things are real. All the rest of it's just kind of like supposition or opinion. The Bible doesn't work in that world. The Bible has a different kind of world. It says that there are spiritual or non-visible realities that impinge upon every facet of our world, every facet of our life. And it is either rooted in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, or it is rooted in a spirit that is not of God and is evil. 
And so God says, hey, stay away from those things. Now, I want to move into them because I do think that there is more here than just dancing with the devil, which is a bad idea. Don't do it. Um, I think there is more at work than just these practices. I think these practices plug into the worldview and identity of the peoples around the ancient world. I think it will speak to us here today. So if we have the list, this is kind of the list. I, I, I crushed all the uh, necromancy and all that stuff into this bottom one. But you can see it here. Sacrifice of children, divination, fortunes, all these different things. Now if you took this and asked the question, what do these practices do? What do they, what do, they do? What are they for? What do they create? What do they do for the people? Why in the world do you sacrifice your child? That's a big question. Why would you do such a thing? And I think it breaks down into two separate categories. I'm going to call them control of life. Anybody want to control tomorrow? Somebody gives you magic power. Somebody gives you the infinity gauntlet. Huh? (laughs) Jack raises his hand. I will take the infinity gauntlet. You can control tomorrow. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want that? Or wisdom for life. I can give you the answer for the decision you need to make tomorrow. When your boss asks asks you, are you going to do this or this? You know the right place to go or the right thing to say so that you can climb that ladder. Who doesn't want that? Of course they want that. And this is how they engage in their world. They sacrificed children. I'd love to say that this is not something that people do today, but unfortunately, it's not true. It is something they do today. This is actually from, you see the date here is... September 2017, there's a slew of child sacrifices that were going on in Africa. It's recently this year because of, uh, because of drought. And the witch doctors or the shamans or whatever they called them there, uh, what they were saying is if we sacrifice these children, it will bring about, we can control reality. We can control the weather. We can do it through the sacrifice of children. So this is something that still goes on in the world. I don't want you to cry too much, so I'm going to change the channel. What's the point of that? What's the point of child sacrifice? It is this. It is the ability to control tomorrow. And the same thing is true of sorcery and spells. The ability to sort of invoke something upon someone so tomorrow they will do what you want. Similarly, wisdom for life, divination. I mean, when I say uh, wisdom for life, perhaps you think of, anybody remember Miss Cleo? Late, I mean, this is a little bit late night 90s, and some of you are either too old or too young to sort of sit in this time, but I remember watching late night TV, and Miss Cleo always knows. She always And if Miss Cleo could tell me, you know, who my uh, baby daddy's cheating on me with, which is like usually what it was the seediest side of life. It was so funny that it was put, they put on TV, but whatever. If you, could, if, you, if you could find the answer that you're looking for, and Miss Cleo could open her cards up, and she could lay her tarot cards down, and she could give you the answer, what idiot doesn't call and pay 99 cents a minute? I mean, it, it's the answer you need. It's the answer you're looking, you're looking for. It's, it's how you know tomorrow. I mean, that's, that's, man, that's great. What do both of these things have in common? Well, and one thing, we, don't, we sort of disregard this stuff. I don't think anybody really, well, I mean, somebody did. She was getting 99 cents a minute, so someone thought she was legit. But most of us here today, I think, probably assume she was not a legitimate, legitimate seer or whatever. But I think two things that come, that come forward with this is the first that what we see in terms of the worldview of these ancient people, and I think I put my chart back up. I didn't, no. What we see within the worldview of these ancient people is that all of this is, All of this is still the same question. How 
do I make decisions about tomorrow? Now, they are using practices that most of you probably are not involved with. You, we aren't, that big list of things is not something you are doing or I am doing. But the worldview I think I see today in the American culture is not drastically different. It's not drastically different. They work along the same lines, and it works here like this. The world is ruled, or the world is run, maybe that's a better word, run by a collection of invaluable physical laws. The world is basically, the universe is basically a great machine. And if we can find out all of the different ways in which the world works, we can then, as individuals, manipulate those things. But we also begin to see ourselves as machines. Isn't this, this is the the root of the abortion debate. Is it a clump of cells that just gestate out of humans? Or is it life? It's a fundamental question. That fundamental question goes back to the fundamental worldview, which is why we're at an impasse. Because most of us, if you're involved in this debate, most of the people are arguing down here. But right here's the problem. If you see the world mechanistically, all it is is just a collection of laws, a collection of cells, a collection of anything else. And we can learn how to make them, how they operate, and then we can manipulate them without any outside intervention. There is no God who's breaking in, who's doing anything. And we're just like that. We're also biological machines. Then our practices flow from that, don't they? The problem is so many of us are back here arguing or just assuming, just doing We don't have enough thought into who we are and the world that we live in. We miss things. So two things that I would bring out in terms of the American culture in which we live in, which, as you can see, this is not dissimilar from the ancient world. The ancient world's the same way. They had the same belief. The world is a bunch of, is a mechanism as well. And if we manipulate the right spirits, we'll get our outcome. Worldviews the same. Practices are different. This is why worldview and identity matter so much. So two things I would bring forward are this. Scientism and self-help. How do we control the world? We control the world now through science. Now this is not me, because this is going out on the internet. This is not me saying science is bad. Science is wonderful. It's done all kinds of things. I'm wearing it. I'm clicking it. It's in my back. It's all over, right? I mean, there are so many wonderful things. Jack flashes his his favorite piece of technology at me over there. I'm picking on you today. I picked on Dan last week. You'll be the token sinner this week. So we'll just... Reprieved! Reprieved! Science is wonderful. um, But there are many ways in which our worldview is being shaped by science or we're using science in ways that are, are not what it's meant to be. It can't explain everything. That's a fundamental belief of Christians. It can't explain everything. And yet, we're being, it's being proffered to us as they are. If you listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you listen to Bill Nye, they're asking all kinds of philosophical questions, and they are wretched philosophers. For instance, the one thing we should have learned from Jurassic Park is this. Science can teach us how to make dinosaurs. Theology will tell you why that's a bad idea. <laughs> this is an important question. This is an important point. Uh, there's, there's lots that are good, that, good that's happening, but there, there comes a point where this worldview backs up, and it begins to then shape how we understand things, how we understand ourselves, and then we have all kinds of tricky situations that happen down here. We have this self-help area, um, which has created a lot of good. Self-esteem in some ways is very good, but it has also created a bunch of narcissists, which is what research is now showing. Research, talk to Laura about that, she's the expert. But research is now showing that if you pump somebody full of so much self-esteem, suddenly they begin to think that they're the center of the world. 
and you ain't, right? That's a problem. So anyway, all of this is just to say that the same issues that we are trying, the same things that we're wrestling with, that we're coming up with answers, all of this is sort of alive and well, we'll move on past that. So what do we do? And the problem here with these, with these issues is that they, they all, whether we're talking about the, the ancient process of you know, cutting a bird open and playing with its guts to figure out what it is that we should do, or cutting our minds open uh, psychologically and figuring out what we should do, both of them have a, a mechanism that is both set aside from God. They don't need God for what they're up to. The Bible puts a great deal of emphasis on this word faith. Faith. And if at any point we have a system or a practice or a process or a way of life that doesn't need God, then it suddenly becomes problematic for us. Because we're the people who believe that God's fingerprints are on everything. They're on everything. God is shaping a people to his eternal glory. So what do we do? How do we live? Where do we find our answers? Your uh, editors, or the editors of our, of our Bibles, uh, they, they add a new, new heading here. It says, a new prophet like Moses. And it might make you think that Moses switched gears. I don't think he has. I think he's answering the same question. So if you look at your Bibles again, uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers... It is to him you shall listen. So remember the context again. Moses is going to die. Like that's, his time is is short. His days are limited. He's going to pass away. What do we do, Moses, when you're dead? Because the temptation is going to be, I mean, Moses is, he's the guy that they've seen so much activity with. They've seen him walking with, they've seen all kinds of wonderful things. And Moses passes away. And Joshua's got to step up into some really big shoes. I don't envy Joshua. I don't envy him at all. It might be why the beginning chapter of Joshua keeps on saying, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. On your own, you're in trouble. You're no Moses. But with God, Moses was just a man. So, what are we going to do? Well, the temptation is going to be to take the initiative on ourselves and try to manipulate the world or manipulate our lives, manipulate the situation, get our hands dirty and, and make and force the changes. And their practice would have been divination, might have been child sacrifice, might have been spells, sorcery, incantations, these sorts of things. They would have sought to touch the spiritual unseen world and use that to manipulate the world around them. We wouldn't do it the same way, but the process is still the same. The thought process is still the same. Moses says there is going to be somebody who God will raise up and they will speak for God in directing you in your path. Of course, the law is also being given, so these things are also being given to to set up up some boundaries. And so a prophet can't just step up and say whatever, uh, whatever he or she would have wanted. Rather, they need to stay within the boundaries of, of Scripture. But I think this point of prophecy becomes really, really important. And it's important that we understand what a prophet did. Because when I say prophecy, perhaps you're back thinking about Madame Cleo again. And that is not what prophets did. That's not what prophets do. 
If you read closely the scriptures and you go from Joshua, maybe you jump to, I think some big ones like Elijah, Elisha, and then you look at the books, Isaiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah, Amos, all these different prophets. They all had three things in common, all of them. Prophets did three things. The first thing the prophet did was the prophet would name sin. Now, automatically, we sort of moved into, two, uh, into a, what seems to be a different category. I have a problem. I have a decision. I have something that I'm trying to work out because of the situation I'm in. And immediately, the prophet begins with what? Where you screwed up. We don't ever see that in the self-help books, do we? We don't begin there. Because if we're walking in line with God, then there's a clear vision and there's clear purpose. Even if the world is still broken around us, we know what we ought to do. If we've come sideways from God and we've lost sight of God, then suddenly we're in a new situation, a problem. And so sin here, I don't mean just like, oh, you're an awful, terrible person. I just mean that we've gotten sidetracked. We've lost sight of the goal. We've lost sight of God. We've stopped walking in his ways. So the prophet would stand up and say, listen, we've lost sight of God. And then the prophet would do another thing. The prophet would say, hey, listen, we need to repent. And here I don't just mean say sorry. Don't just tell God, sorry, God, we did that. Now everything's going to be better. No, it means taking our lives, our worldview, our identity, and our practices, and realigning them with the God who has commanded, called, and shaped us. That's what the prophet does interpreting the times around them in that moment. And then finally, all of the prophets will do this. They announce the reign of God, that God is the one who is in control of world history, that God is the one who can direct and who can guide and who can set things right. And if you have a problem, if you have something that you need, you need to go to God or to the community of faith to find God. It's interesting, isn't it, that as we who are Christians, and so we're we're, we're always thinking about Jesus too. How does Jesus plug into this? Isn't it interesting that as the prophets begin to declare the word of God, as they go through constantly saying, well, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord to correct Israel and set them back on the right path, Jesus shows up on the scene and what does John say? He is the word. Not just that he declares the word. Not just that he says the word of God, but Jesus himself and all that he is and all that he does and all that he says as well. Jesus is the incarnate word. If you disagree with Jesus, in word or in deed, you disagree with God. What's interesting, though, is that we're faced with another problem. What's the problem that we have today? Where's Jesus? Not here. We have his words, we have his, uh, uh, got a Bible over here. Yeah, we, have, we have witness to Jesus, but Jesus isn't here. So what do, we, what do we do with that? What did Jesus say would happen? Sally, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And notice, notice what the Holy Spirit does. And when he, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he, that is the Spirit. And it's interesting and important to point out, as we're thinking about how do I live in life, how do I make decisions, how do these things happen, and we think about the ancient world and their practices, and maybe you're thinking about your own practices, how do I make decisions, isn't it interesting that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, the one who walks next to, right? The one who is next to you. 
you are an advocate, helper. There's all kinds of ways we translate it. But essentially, it's somebody who is right beside you, that the spirit of the living God, if you are a child of God, is within and around and with you in these decisions and these things that you've got. What does the spirit do? When the spirit comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. They did not heed the word. They did not heed Jesus. Righteousness, because I go to the Father, so no one's going to be there. So, so righteousness, again, is that word that means what's right. What's justice? What's goodness? What's the value? What's the good in the world that I should participate in? Because that's what God is up to in the world. What's the good? concerning righteousness because Jesus isn't going to be there anymore. And so now we need a guide who can guide us toward righteousness because Jesus says, I go to the Father, you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is cast down. All of the forces of darkness, all of the powers and principalities, whether we're talking uh, things we see or things we don't see, their days are numbered. And there will come a time when God will rule over all of creation. The Spirit is declaring the same message Jesus showed up declaring. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. Do the good news. Practice the good news. So the Spirit is alive and around us, helping us with the very problem that we faced at the very beginning of this journey. What do I do? What do I do? How do I live in the world? And if you've listened through all of this, if you've stayed awake and made it, haven't clicked past the Facebook feed, (laughs) I don't have an answer. There's no answer. There's no four principles I could give you. There's no five principles. There's no ten principles I could give you to give you the answer. What should you do tomorrow? In fact, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't ever do that? He doesn't ever lay it out and say, here's the, here's the thought process for every decision you're ever going to make. Because life is complicated. And there aren't a lot of easy answers. There's not a lot of easy situations. Um, if there are any moms here today, you've been married to somebody for a week, or you've had a kid for a day, you know that it's complicated. And that there isn't a way to manipulate time and there isn't a way to manipulate people and there isn't a way to set everything up so that you can make the right and you can get everything you want out of life there is no process for that and god isn't interested in giving that to you instead god is interested in you walking with him and you walking with him and he walking with you which is why jesus is so intent on saying it's good that i'm leaving and it's better that the spirit is coming Because if the Spirit is in you, around you, and walking with you, then when you face those challenging questions, those difficult decisions, you have an advocate, a helper, somebody who is with you, who can guide you, direct you, pull you in the right direction, which is far more difficult, but far more real than any book you could pick up that gives you an easy answer. I worry about our easy answers I worry about our easy answers Um, because I think at their heart they have a worldview that is not the Bible's worldview. And I'll I'll kind of move quickly through this. This is too much, and so I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because there's slides there. And that that wasn't, I don't know, maybe, maybe Brian, you can move this up one, I don't know. 
this is a, a moralistic therapeutic deism is a, is a phrase. It's a super fun phrase. Say it three times fast. You'll love it. Comes from a sociological study of children, of teenagers, and their religious beliefs. So uh, uh, two sociologists did this study of Christian teenagers and said, what is it that, that you believe? And they did all these you know, social scientific surveys and things like that. I don't know what methodology they use. Oh, we lost it. My bad. Sorry. Um, and they came up with this. This is the list of things that God... A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible in most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. When do you pray? Wow, some are better than others. God's people or good people go to heaven when they die. I think atheists might agree with most of this. They, you know, they jettison God. But the problem is that everyone gets behind this. And the problem, I think, further with this is that, um, that this very much represents, I think, what many of us are after as we read scripture or we come to church. We think that God is this kind of God. And the problem, of course, is that none of this announces the reign of God, which is what Jesus was all about. A further problem with this is that Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, then you have to take up your cross. And perhaps we've lost the meaning of the cross because it's often so adorned with gold and gems. But crosses are what you kill people on. And I don't know if any of you died lately, but there's not a lot of therapeutic value in crucifixion. So there's a problem here, and there's a problem here of anything that we do in terms of what we're, what we're after when we try to make decisions about what is the good and what is the actionable value that I should, I should do in making this or that decision. If it doesn't begin with a Jesus who says, I lay down my life, and if it doesn't begin with the humility that we have as we chase after Jesus, then it isn't a very Christian one. You will find the Jesus you're looking for. Let me put it that way. I worked in youth ministry for too long with too many parents who wanted me to teach their kids to be good and nice. And Jesus was in there knocking over tables and messing stuff up. What kind of Jesus do you want? The Jesus who is in the scriptures is a Jesus who messes things up, but who says as the world gets more complicated, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so as I move forward and we move towards kind of a conclusion, and I don't know that I can offer a very good one, honestly, with all of that, other than to say don't dance with the devil. If Miss Cleo, actually I think she passed away, um, but uh, the palm reader out here on, uh, is it Portage or Westnage? Westnage, the palm reader, don't, don't do that. No bueno, no good. What's that? Mother Paula. She even has a name. Wonderful. Mother Paula. Steer clear of all of that, um, not just because it is to mess with things that shouldn't be messed with, but because it will shape you in a way that is the antithesis of what God is after. And instead, what we ought to do is we ought to think about how we make decisions, which is our practice bit, and we ought to spend a little more time thinking about the way in which we make decisions and what that says about who we are and the world that we believe we live in. And I think the scriptures and the, and the Christian community have been given a better way, the best way, the true way, the authentic way. And that way would be in this, 
that we have boundaries. That is why God gave us a Bible. If you want to know what to do, I suggest you become a word-soaked individual. Somebody who can know the scriptures, somebody who can teach the scriptures even, somebody who is motivated and moved by the scriptures. And I highlight word here because Jesus is the word of God incarnate, that he is both in demonstration and in command, the one who we should be looking for. And he sets up the boundary by which we might live our lives. And the second thing is, I would suggest that we need need to be a people of deep and constant prayer. Nothing new there. The new part might be this, that we are a community of discernment. Often we make decisions in isolation. Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about the church, he says that all you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Later on, he says you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So many times we make our decisions, we make our life, uh, life choices based upon the individuality of God moving with us, having the Spirit with us. But I am often wrong. And in order for me to make right decisions, I need other perspectives and people, which is why God did not just save me for his own sake, but rather he saved us, that we might be filled with the Spirit, that we might sharpen one another, that we might offer good, godly, spiritual advice. That when you are facing a decision, the best way to face that decision is amongst other believers who can help you think through, pray through, and work through those tough calls that you have to make, those marriage fights that you don't know how to solve, those kids who you don't know what to do with. We were talking about this in Sunday school, about how rarely we confess our trials, our struggles with one another, and what a terrible, terrible lack that then creates within us. Because you have the Spirit, just like I have the Spirit. And the Spirit is working in you in ways He's not working in me, which is why I need you and why you need me. So, in this line here is this important word, community. Plug in somewhere. If it's Sunday school, if it's just calling someone and saying, hey, let's get lunch. If it's a small group, all of those things are available to you. Please plug in somewhere so that the Spirit of God can help you with every decision that you make. As we come to conclusion, we invite anyone who might need prayer. If you are struggling with something, this is not a place of judgment. This is a place where we are trying to make sense of the world. Certainly there's sin and certainly there's repentance. Um, But we are working together because we all have something we need to repent of today. Right? Right? Yeah. And so we'll have our elders down front here. So if if you need prayer, if you need somebody to come talk with you for a little bit, that will be available. We invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing this last song.